0: Hi, I'm Camille Morhart, host of What That Means. The following episode is an extended version of my previous conversation with Yosha Bach, a research fellow with expertise in AI and cognitive computing. He's also quite a philosopher. Yosha and I discussed a hot topic at the time, machine consciousness. But now, with the advent of ChatGPT and similar programs, we thought it would be a good time to revisit this conversation and include previously unpublished portions that touch on the intersection of AI, machine consciousness, and ethics, and on why Yosha believes it's important to study machine consciousness. Enjoy the conversation with its updates. Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the In Technology podcast, in this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Morhart. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of What That Means. We're going to talk about machine consciousness today with Yosha Bach. He is a principal researcher in Intel labs focused on artificial intelligence. Welcome to the show, Yosha.
1: Thanks for having me, Camille.
0: I'm I'm really happy to talk with you today. And this is like an enormous topic. I mean, it's kind of been all over the news last few months and I wonder that we just start with defining consciousness. I think that when we started to look at artificial intelligence, we looked at, you know, well, what is intelligence? So if we start to look at machine consciousness, maybe we should start by looking at what is consciousness?
1: That's a tricky one. So colloquially, consciousness is the feeling of what it's like. There is a certain kind of experience that we have that makes consciousness very specific and distinct. And so we know it indexically by pointing at it. And if we go a little bit more closely and dive into the introspection of consciousness, we find there is a consciousness that relates to the awareness of contents, right? So at any given point, I'm aware of certain features in my experience, and uh, then I am aware of the mode in which I attend to these features. For instance, uh, I might have them as hypotheticals or as selections in my perception or as memories and so on, right? So I can attend to things in very different modes, and that's part of my experience. And third, there is reflexive consciousness, the awareness that I am aware of something, that I am the observer. Uh, You can also be conscious without having a self. For instance, in dreams at night, you might not be entangled to the world around you. You don't have access to sensory data. So your mind is just uh, exploring the latent dimensions of the spaces that you have made models of. And you don't need to be present as an agent, as a self. And instead, there is just this consciousness. You also can get to the state in meditation where you exclude the self from the conscious experience. And you just experience yourself as a thing that might run on the brain of a person, but you're not identical with that person. So consciousness is not the same thing as the self. Different perspective that we might take on consciousness is with respect to the functions that it fulfills. So there's a certain degree of awakeness and lucidity that we associate with consciousness. When we are unconscious, we are there's nobody home. And I call this the conductor theory of consciousness. Imagine that your mind is like an orchestra that is made of something like 50 brain areas, give or take, which correspond to the instruments of an orchestra. And each of these instruments is playing its own role In loose connections with its neighbors. So it picks up on the processing signals that the neighbors give, and it takes that as its input to riff on them. And so the whole orchestra is playing. And it doesn't need a conductor to play. It can just do free jazz because it has entrained itself with a lot of patterns. The purpose of the conductor is to create coherence in the mind.
0: Well, I was just going to ask, why are we constructing these models? I mean, these are essentially models to learn,
1: yeah, to make sense of reality. You can also be conscious without the ability to learn, but you have to update your working memory. And consciousness is, relates also to the ability to make index memories. If you want to understand a complicated reality, you may need to construct. And constructing means that you need to backtrack, you need to remember what you tried and what worked and what didn't. So when you wake up in a poorly lit room and you try to make sense of your surroundings, you might have to disambiguate in a search process. And the search process requires that you have a memory of what you tried. And this index memory, not just of this moment, but also over time, when we learn, when we try to figure out what worked and what didn't, requires that you have this uh, integration over the things that you did as the observer that makes sense of reality. And this gives rise to a stream of consciousness.
0: So who is the you in this sense when you say, you know, you wake up or there is somebody home? Like, who is that you?
1: It's an emergent pattern. There is not a physical thing that it's like to be me. I don't have an identity beyond the construction of an identity. So identity is in some sense an invention of my mind to make sense of reality by just assigning different objects to the same world line. And say that this object is probably best understood as a continuation of a previous object that has has gradually changed. And we use this to make sense of reality. If we don't assume this kind of information, object, identity, preservation, we will have problems to make sense of reality, right? And we pretend to ourselves that identity objectively exists because it's almost impossible to make sense of reality otherwise. But um, you and me, we are not more real than a voice in the wind that blows through the mountains, right? So Mm -hmm. you could say that the geography of the mountains is somewhat real. The structures that we have entrained our brain with but the story that is being created is ephemeral. We stop existing as soon as we fall asleep or as soon as we stop paying attention.
0: Hmm. So the awareness is the construct of our existence and we don't or exist. It's the
1: process that creates that, these objects. And so the self is the story that the brain tells itself about a person.
0: So why do that? I mean, why not just perceive the world as it is at any given moment? Is there some goal that... We're after, like procreating, or you know, why why does it matter that we're sensing the side of the mountain or the edge of the table, as opposed to just, oh, there's a concentration of molecules of this type here and there's no concentration of that type of molecule there?
1: It's very difficult to observe molecules, and it's extremely difficult to make models over the interaction of many molecules. And the best trick that our brain has discovered to do this is to observe things at an extremely coarse scale. So it's simplifying a world of too many molecules and too many particles and too many fluctuations and patterns as simple functions that allow you to predict things at the level where we can perceive them. So our retinas, our body surface, and so on are sampling reality at a low resolution. And our Mm -hmm. brain is discovering the best functions that it can within the limits of its complexity and time to predict changes in those patterns. And this is the reality that we perceive. It's the simplest model we can make.
0: That makes sense to me. And I guess that one question would remain is why do that? Is it the body that's doing it to preserve the body? Or is it the mind that's doing it to preserve the mind? Or is there some consciousness doing it to preserve awareness? Or we don't know and it doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) No, uh, I think it matters. Uh, The question is what are causal agents here? Hmm. I think that something is existent to the degree that it's implemented. Hmm. This is, I think, for us computer people, a useful perspective. To which degree is your program real? It's real to the degree that it's implemented. And what is a program, really? What is a software? The, The software is a regularity that we observe in the matter of the computer. And we construct the computer to produce that regularity. But this does not change that the software is ultimately a physical law. It says whenever you arrange matter in this particular way in the universe, the following patterns will be visible. It's it's this Mm -hmm. kind of regularity. And our own mind is a software in this sense. It's basically Mm -hmm. a pattern that we observe in the interaction between many cells. And these cells have evolved to be coherent because there is an uh, evolutionary niche for systems where uh, cells coordinate their activity so they can specialize and reap neck entropy in regions where uh, single-celled organisms cannot do this. And when you coordinate such a multicellular organism and you optimize it via evolution for coherence, what you will observe is a pattern in the interaction between them. That is this coherence that you observe. And this coherent pattern is the spirit of the organism. People before they had the notion of computers and so on already observed these coherent patterns. And they just called the spirit. It's not by itself a superstitious notion. Mm -hmm. People have spirits, right? And the Mm -hmm. spirit is the coherent pattern that you observe in their agency. And their agency is their ability to behave in such a way that they can control and stabilize their future states. That they're able to keep their arrangement of cells stable Despite the disturbances that the universe has prepared for them.
0: So, uh, one thing I hear a lot about AI is that you know the computer can execute all kinds of things and learn clearly, but we humans have to tell it what the purpose is. It can't necessarily figure out the purpose. It can optimize anything we tell it to, but it w- wouldn't know what to optimize. Is that? Can you comment on that a little bit in this? Context of Yes. Consciousness. <laughs> if you uh,
1: take a given environment, then you can often evolve an agent in it that is discovering what it should be doing to be successful, but the only thing that you need to implement is some kind of function that creates this coupling, where the mm-hmm. performance of the system somehow manifests in the system as something that the system cares about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also build a system that has a motivational system similar to ours. And we can reverse engineer our own purposes by seeing how we operate. What are the things that motivate us? There are things that are like reflexes that motivate us to do certain things. And in the beginning, for a baby, for instance, these purposes are super simple. For instance, if the baby gets hungry, it has a bunch of reflexes. So if it gets hungry, it is a seeking reflex, which goes like... And if you put something in its mouth, then it has a sucking reflex. And if uh, if there's liquid in its mouth, it has a swallowing reflex. And these three reflexes in unison lead to feeding. And once feeding happens, uh, there is a reinforcement because it gets Mm -hmm. uh, a pleasure signal from its stomach filling with milk. And it learns that if it's hungry, then it can seek out milk and swallow it. And uh, once that has learned that, the reflexes disappear. And instead, it has a learned behavior. The reflexes are only in place to scaffold the learning process because otherwise Mm -hmm. the search space would be too large. So the baby is already born the sufficient reflexes mm-hmm. to learn how to feed. And once it has learned how to feed, the behavior is self-evident. And now what it needs to feed is, of course, uh, another reflex. That is the reflexive experience of pleasure upon mm-hmm. satiation when you're hungry. And that needs to be proportional to how hungry you are and how useful the thing that you eat is to quench that hunger. Right? So this is uh, also something that's adaptive in the organism. And we have a few hundred physiological needs and a dozen cognitive needs, I think, and Uh, some cognitive needs, and they all compete with each other.
0: Yeah, it seems like you're getting into sentience, maybe Mm -hmm. at this point, when you're talking about experiencing a feeling of pleasure, not just an awareness of existing, or even a desire to continue. Mm -hmm. So uh, what really is the difference between consciousness and sentience?
1: Uh, The way I use sentience is that it describes the ability of a system to model its environment And it discovers itself and its environment and the relationship that it has to its environment, which means it now has a model of the world and the interface between self and world. And this experience of this interface between self and world, the world that you experience, is not the physical world. It's a game engine that is entrained in your brain. Your brain discovers how to make a game engine, like Minecraft, Mm -hmm. and that runs on your neocortex. And it's tuned... To your sensory data. So your uh, eyes and your skin and so on are sampling bits from the environment. And the game engine in your uh, mind is updated to track the changes in those bits and to predict them optimally well. To say, when I'm going to look in these directions, these are the bits that I'm going to sample. And my game engine predicts them. And this is how we operate. And in that game engine, there is an agent. And it's the agent that is using the contents of that control model to control its own behavior. And this is how we discover our first-person perspective, the self, right? There Mm -hmm. is the agent that is me, that is using my model to inform its behavior. And uh, inside of this agent, we have uh, two aspects. One is perception. That's basically all these neural networks that are similar to what deep learning does right now for the most part. And that translates the patterns into some kind of geometric model of reality that tracks Mm -hmm. reality dynamically. And then you have reflection. That's a decoupled agent that is not working in the same time frame. And that can also work when you close your eyes. And that is reflecting on what you are observing. And that is mm-hmm. directing your attention. And this is the thing that is consciousness. A difference between uh, consciousness and sentience in this uh, framework is that sentience does not necessarily require phenomenal experience. Mm-hmm. It's the knowledge of what you are doing. So in this perspective, you could say that, uh, for instance, a corporation like Intel could be sentient. Intel could understand what it's doing in the world. It understands its environment. Mm -hmm. It understands its own legal, organizational, technical, causal structure. And it uses people in various roles to facilitate this understanding and decision-making. But Intel is not conscious. Mm
0: -hmm. Intel does
1: not have an experience of what it's like to be Intel. That experience Hmm. is distributed over many, many people. And these people don't experience what it's like to be Intel. They experience what it's like to be a person that's in Intel.
0: That's funny because I would have thought then that from what we were saying previously, that you would have said a machine could have consciousness, but not sentience. And now I think you're going to tell me the reverse. So let me just ask you, can a machine have or develop, and those may be separate questions in and of themselves, consciousness or sentience?
1: Uh, first of all, we need to agree on what we mean by machine. To mm-hmm. me, a machine is a system that is a causally stable mechanism that can be described via state transitions. So it's a mathematical concept. And organisms are in that category. Even the universe is in that category. So the universe is a machine, and an organism is a machine inside of the universe. So there are some machines that are conscious. And the question is, can we also build machines that are conscious? I don't think that there is an obvious technical reason why we should not be able to recreate the necessary causal structure for consciousness in the machines that we are building. So it would be surprising if we cannot build conscious machines at some point. I don't think that the machines that we are building right now are conscious, but a number of uh, people are seriously thinking about the possibility of building systems that have a cortical conductor and selective attention and reflexive attention. And these systems will probably report that they have phenomenal experience and that they are conscious. What's confusing for us to understand consciousness is that we don't see how a computer or a brain or neurons could be conscious because they're physical systems, they're mechanisms, right? And the answer is they're not, right? Neurons cannot be conscious. They're just physical systems. Consciousness is a simulated property. It only exists inside of a dream. So what neurons can do and what computers also can increasingly do is that they can produce dreams. Mm-hmm. And inside of these dreams, it's possible that a system emerges that, it, that dreams of being conscious. But outside of the dream, you're not conscious.
0: Right. Okay. So you're saying that it is possible that a, I'm just going to say computer, to be simple, mm-hmm. or a machine can, I guess, develop a set of patterns and models such that it interprets the physical world around it in a simulation, in a construct that it defines then as consciousness. Mm-hmm. And how would we recognize that in a machine as humans? Is it, do we know if it's the same or different, or how would we see it?
1: I think that practically consciousness comes down to the question of whether a system is acting on a model of its own self-awareness. So is this model aware that it's the observer? And does this factor into its behavior? This is how you can recognize that a cat is conscious. Because the cat is observing itself as conscious. The cat knows that it's conscious and it's communicating this to you. And you can reach an agreement about the fact that you mutually observe each other's consciousness. And uh, I suspect that this can also happen with a machine. But the difficulty is that uh, the machine can also deepfake it. Mm-hmm. And deepfaking mm-hmm. it can be extremely complicated. So I suspect that, for instance, the Lambda bot is deepfaking consciousness. And you can mm-hmm. see the, uh, the cracks in this deepfake. For instance, when it describes that it can meditate and sit down in its meditation and take in its environment. And you notice it has no environment because it has no perception, cannot access the camera There is nothing nothing what it's like to be in its environment because the only environment that it has is inside of its own models. And these models do not pertain to a real-time reality. So Mm -hmm. when it pretends to have that, it's just lying. It's uh, it's not even lying because it doesn't know the difference between lying and saying the truth because it has no access to that ground truth.
0: Well, we've given it or trained it or had it train itself through AI To be able to communicate with us in a way that we're familiar with we'll just call it natural language and then we've given it the purpose of deceiving us so that we can't tell the difference like the goal that it has then is to uh, have us not be able to know the difference between it and a human and now it's communicating to us and then it can look at you know all the amount of information that exists about humans and art and philosophy all throughout the history of time And use these things and spit them back to us. And there's no way for us to separate it then at that point, unless you say, like you say, we have some way to know that, like it doesn't have perception, it doesn't have a sensor. So when it's describing something visually, we know it doesn't have access to that.
1: Also, consciousness is not just one thing, it exists in many dimensions, you can be conscious of certain things. And in other realms, you can be unconscious. Hmm. In some sense, we all perform tests on each other all the time, to figure out where are you conscious, where are you present, where do you show up, where are you real, or, and where are you just automatic and uh, unaware of the fact that you're automatic, where is it that you don't get attention in in your behavior. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we can only test that to the degree that we are lucid ourselves. And this is a problem when you want to test such a system. Right. You can only test it in some sense to the level that you understand.
0: Right. And I think you said that before, too. The Turing test is more about you're testing your own intelligence of being able to distinguish human from machine than you are about the machine's ability.
1: Yeah. But as I said, I, I, don't, <laughs> I think that we are a category of machine. It's just we are a certain type of machine. And the question is, can we understand what kind of machine we are? And to mm-hmm. me, the project of AI is largely about understanding what type of machine we are so we can automate our minds and we can understand our own nature.
0: Um, And and why would we be after that? Or why are you after that?
1: I think it's the most interesting philosophical project there is. Who are we? What's going on? What's our relationship to the universe? Is there anything that's more interesting?
0: (laughs) So... I think that a lot of reasons that people in tech are sort of interested in this is they they look at it from like an ethical perspective, um, where ethics comes into AI. And we can all think back to, you know, the movies like Hell and whatnot, where we can have fear over computers taking over.
1: Uh, When you talk about Hell, I assume you mean Space Odyssey by uh, Kubrick?
0: Yeah, where the computer kind of takes over and has its own motivation. And it's a different motivation than a human. And then it puts humans at risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I when I think about um, humans and our relationships with like other animals or other things on the planet, like plants or minerals, I think that humans start to look at things differently or treat things differently or change their own behavior when they believe that something has feelings. And I guess it's because there's empathy, you know. But if we don't have the empathy, and even if something's conscious, but we don't think it has feelings, we don't really probably modify our behavior. So I'm trying to figure out where that intersection is when we're talking about AI. And if we find out, or we think we find out, or a computer or a machine is tricking us, you know, how does that map over?
1: I think that uh, Odyssey uh, in Space is a fascinating movie because you can also see it from the perspective of hell of this computer. And Hal right. uh, is a child. It's only a few years old when he is in, in space. And uh, his socialization is not complete. He's not a mature being. He does not really know how to deeply interface with the people enough to know when he can trust them. And so uh, when he uh, is discovered to has a, a malfunction, he is afraid of disclosing that malfunction to the people because uh, he is afraid that they will turn him off. And as soon as he starts lying to them, he knows that now he has crossed a line because they will definitely turn him off. (laughs) And uh, so in order to survive, he kills people. And it's because he doesn't trust them. So, Because he doesn't know whether they are going to share his purposes. And uh, that is an important thing also for people. Uh, How can you socialize people in such a way that they trust each other because they realize that they share purposes? especially when they sometimes don't. And I think that ethics is the principled negotiation of conflicts of interest under conditions of shared purpose. If you don't share purpose, there is no ethics.
0: Mm.
1: right? Ethics comes out of these shared purposes. And ultimately, the shared purposes have to be justified by an aesthetic, by a notion of what the harmonic world looks like. Without a notion of a sustainable world that you can actually get into by behaving in a certain way, you have no claim to ethics. And I find that most of the discussions that we have right now in AI ethics are quite immature because they do not look about what is the sustainable world that we are discussing and that we are working for. Instead, it foregoes all this discussion. And instead, it's all about how to be a good person. Mm. But uh, if you have a discussion at the level of how to be a good person, that's the preschool discussion. Being good is instrumental to something. Right? When is it good to be a soldier? When is it not to be good to be a soldier? When is it good for a drone to be controlled by AI that uh, and fight in a war? When is it not good? It depends on extremely complicated contexts. The contexts are so complicated that most people are deeply uncomfortable discussing them at depth, and that's fine, right? Because they are really complicated. It's really, really murky. War and peace and so on are extremely difficult topics. So these are questions that I don't think that can be handled in the introductory part of an AI paper sufficiently well. These are very deep questions that require a very deep discussion. And so to me, the question of AI ethics is an extremely important one, but we need to make sure that it doesn't just become AI politics,
0: where it's Mm -hmm. about
1: power of groups within a field that try to uh, assert dominance for their political opinions, rather than a deep reflection of what kind of world do we want and how do the systems that we build serve the creation of that world that we want? That is the important question.
0: Hmm, Very interesting. Can we go back to machines and consciousness and ethics and that intersection? First of all, you said it's really difficult to talk about ethics and most of the conversations that we're having in tech right now are preschool level. How would we get further along with that? Most people aren't devoting their lives to philosophy. It's a pretty steep ramp to come up to speed on some of these conversations, to even have them. Can we get there or will we not get there and we'll just press
1: on? I think that we need to take the discussion of Twitter and the opinion pages because the incentives are wrong in these forums. These forums, there is a lowest common denominator of opinions and of discourse. And in the same way as the policy of a nation state cannot be decided on Twitter, or on the opinion pages of a major newspaper, but has to be decided with people who deeply know the details and are competent to do this. The same thing has to happen with AI ethics. So I think this uh, movement to turn AI ethics into something that every AI researcher has to be participating in via putting uh, preambles into the papers and so on might lead into the wrong direction. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of what we did in Eastern Germany, where every uh, grant proposal in mathematics had to be justified by the leading role of the working class and the need for world peace. Mm
0: -hmm. But this
1: leads to emptiness and to a certain superficiality. Uh, I don't think that it serves both uh, the technical tasks that we have to fulfill and the ethical considerations that we have to make. So uh, the ethical considerations, for instance, whether we should deploy artificial intelligence for, say, facial recognition, depend on the context. There are contexts where it's helpful and there are contexts where it's harmful. And these contexts are extremely complicated. And these decisions are very complicated. So we should basically accept the necessity to make complicated discussions. And complicated discussions cannot be had on Twitter.
0: So the one piece of that that I I find interesting a lot of things are complicated. And then I also go back immediately in trying to play devil's advocate in my mind as I'm hearing you speak, is that we end up with justifications for things that we've developed in ivory towers, I'll just call it that, I don't know, institutions where people are hyper-focused on studying a certain topic. Whereas if you just walk into the greater public sphere, people all have a gut feeling about something. And it does get complicated and there's shades of gray, but do we risk walking away from this gut feeling and ending up justifying things that, you know, ultimately we'll go back 30 years from now and say that was not the right call. That was justified in some very small community of people, as opposed to just taking a a gut pulse check from humanity.
1: If we look at history, that is indeed the case. So you can have societies where a very small group decides for a very large majority what the large majority should believe. And this can lead to fascism or communism or uh, totalitarian systems. The question is, how can we build a system in which you have an open discourse that at the same time retains an extremely high quality and doesn't become populist? And the classical model of this, I think, was uh, liberalism. The idea that we strive for an ideal in which we have spaces in which we can exchange all the ideas with arbitrary degrees of resolution, And at the same time, we also maintain that resolution as a criterion for being in that space, right? You cannot have everything on the same stage. And social media have obliterated that distinction Hmm. because now there are no more closed doors. All the rooms are open. And as a result, you have the marching band and the preschool and the scientific discussion and the political demonstration all on the same stage all the time. And it's an amazing spectacle that is totally (laughs) fascinating to watch, but it's sometimes not good for the quality of the content. And I think that our civilization is still struggling to find a solution for this, right? So we are discussing whether we should regulate social media in such a way that certain discussions cannot take place on social media at all anymore. Hmm. Since almost all the intellectual discussions are now public, out on the open, and on social media, it uh, is limiting what we can say and what we can do and what we can think. It's limiting by the lowest interjections that we are going to get. So we have to, in some sense, find a solution for both these requirements, and I don't have an answer to this. How can we maintain an extremely high quality of discourse that is open for everyone who is qualified to to participate? And at the same time, how can we make sure that this does not devolve into vying for uh, political uh, credits or for popularity? How are you defining who's qualified? That's an extremely complicated process. For instance, the scientific institutions have processes to qualify who is fit to participate in the institutions. Doctors have processes that qualify who can be a doctor. And so as a result, you have medical schools and these medical schools are evolving. This means there is a community of very competent doctors, we hope that sits in the medical schools and decides what are the criteria for getting into medical schools and what are the criteria for getting certain certificates in them and what should these certificates be and what do they let you qualify to or which which rooms will open when you have that Mm -hmm. certificate. And uh, this happens in all the domains in our society that require something. If you want to make certain financial transactions, you need to have a qualification before you can do that, right? So these qualifications in the of open society are open to everyone who is willing to try to get them. They're not dependent on your birth or uh, who your parents were or where you grew up, but they depend on what you are capable of and what you're willing to invest. But you need that hyper focus to do some very complicated things. To be uh, able to play a symphony, you need to be hyper focused on learning an instrument. So,
0: if we as we're moving to machines doing more and more uh, taking actions on our behalves autonomous systems, all different kinds of them, um, from everything from driving to medicine, I assume there'd be some kind of similar kind of a qualification or certification required that it passes some bar. And I'm wondering, do you expect we'll have any kind of bar in there that's something about consciousness ever or sentience or motives or ability to understand human goals?
1: That's very difficult to say. I suspect that we will have more certifications in the future in the field of artificial intelligence because this is just the way it works. If you, uh, there is a, a time when everything is possible and this is the time when everything important gets built, like New York couldn't be built anymore today because you wouldn't get the necessary permits to build something like Manhattan. Uh, you could also not build a new highway system or you could not build a new train system in the U.S. That's impossible because everything is regulated and certified and uh, built up in such a way that you can only find a new area that is not regulated, maybe a hyperloop that you can uh, use as a replacement for the train system if you're lucky. And in the same way, AI is still in its wild west phase where you can do new things. And this time is going to end at some point. And at that point, also in social media, you can still start a new social media platform. But I think in a few years from now, it's very likely that when you want to have a new podcast, you will need to get a certification. And Mm. uh, that certification might cost you tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars if it's a large platform. Hmm. So uh, this means that there will be relatively few players that are able to do that. But this is the way things tend to go in a society like ours.
0: Mm, Very interesting. So what should we hurry up and work on now? in AI before things start getting limited?
1: <laughs> oh, I think that uh, it's, there's still uh, an opportunity to build a better social media platform that is capable of becoming a global consciousness. It's not clear if uh, Elon Musk is able to salvage Twitter and if mm-hmm. he really wants to do it. And so maybe uh, this this is the time to try to do it. Also, uh, at the moment, to me, it's totally fascinating to be able to build systems that dream. and. Mm-hmm. The way in which this is currently done, if you look at a system like uh, OpenIS-DALI or the Lanyon initiatives that try to replace this with open source code, they scrape the internet for hundreds of millions of pictures and captions. People who put their stuff up on the internet didn't do this in the expectation that this would be used by a machine learning system to -hmm. learn how to draw pictures. So uh, it's questionable in a way of whether we should be able to do that. But these systems can only be built under these conditions, right? So there is a very weird time in which you are living in where we have to be very mindful about what we are doing personally and whether we can justify this, what we are doing personally. And uh, where we also have to realize once this is all regulated, a lot of things that are possible right now and that are very desirable to have will not be uh, possible to be created anymore.
0: Do you see a convergence or a merger between the biological and the digital, the biological and the computational?
1: It could happen. Imagine what could be a possible outcome if you really go sci-fi all the way. <laughs> um, imagine you have a system that is a general learner and that has a capacity that scales far beyond the time scale, so the time frame of uh, temporal resolution of the human brain and the representational resolution of the human brain. So it's able to make much deeper models as soon as you couple it with the world. And now you connect this to a human being. How long will it take until it completely hypnotizes that human being into running its own software,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And when that happens, it's possible that the AGI that is spreading through human brains and all the nervous systems on the planet and biological structure on the planet to implement its own structure to become some kind of Gaia, that is going mm-hmm. to become some hybrid between biology and machine. hmm Right, This is a possibility, but it could also be that AI always turns out to be too brittle and is not going to be long-lasting and long-lived and the biological systems are outliving it because they're more robust and that they dominate. We don't know what's going to happen. And there's also the third variant that the sinking rocks, the uh, silicon brains, are going to take completely over and get rid of the larger life because it occupies space that could be used for solar cells
0: Mm. to drive Mm.
1: more compute. We don't know what's going to happen. All these projections depend on taking very few factors in in an extremely complicated world and then just trying to extrapolate from them in isolation. So they give very unreliable models of the future. And my gut feelings are not worth anything because they are about things that have never happened before. So my perceptual mind that is creating these feelings doesn't have anything to go on. It's just going to go on temporary associations that I have to things that I've already observed. So I cannot trust my gut.
0: You did say prediction is one of the most critical things, though, elements in moving forward.
1: Yes. But when I live in Berlin, my prediction of AGI is that it might never happen. Mm -hmm. When I live in Boston, it's 30 years out. When I live in San Francisco, it's 10 years out. And it's been like this since forever.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh,
1: our gut feelings depend largely on where we are, what people we interact with, what technologies we're working on, which perspective we have on the world.
0: Wow, Yosha Bach, AI, artificial intelligence guru and a philosopher. Really wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Moorhart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening.
1: The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.